Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast and radio show of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'd like to remind you to subscribe to our podcast. You can go to the catholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, you name it, we're there. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, our legal eagle, Andrea picciotti Bear. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. I just love that you call me that. I feel so good about myself. The legal Every eagle? Say, yes, I feel like I'm soaring. Well, she's our legal advisor, so I'm the medical advisor and she's the legal advisor. And that's that makes us very special, right, Andrea? <laughs> At the Catholic Association. <laughs> we have specialists. So today I'm in Miami. I'm in my closet studio that looks very official and very effective. And you are, Andrea, in our um, studio in D.C., where you have the beautiful view of the Capitol. I'm actually looking straight out at the Capitol, and next to it is a fantastic icon of St. Michael the Archangel. So I really feel like whatever is going to happen today, it's going to be well protected. <laughs> I saw that last time I was there. It's really cool. That that was a new addition since some time before that. You know, today we have a very special guest, somebody who's our second, he's with us for the second time. Repeat. He's our first repeat A repeat guest. offender. Yeah. <laughs> a repeat offender, which means he had a very delightful time with us last time. And he wanted to come back. So we're having him back. His name is, he's the famous George Weigel. No, and this is such a, uh, a boon for us. I find him um, really upping, upping the game for all of us as far as understanding our faith and understanding history, church history, and the history of the world, and really making all of us uh, be a little bit more contemplative and thoughtful about what this beautiful gift of our faith is. Well, in case the name George Weigel didn't ring a bell with our listeners, I will uh, explain to them that he's a distinguished senior fellow at the Cath at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is a really distinguished and widely published Catholic intellectual. He's uh, have he's been given, I think, nineteen honorary doctorates oh, in, goodness. in fields including yeah, <laughs> divinity, philosophy, law, social science. And I think most of our listeners would best know him, would recognize him for being the, the beloved biographer of Pope John Paul II in that wonderful book, Witness to Hope. And he also wrote a sequel called The End and the Beginning. And today, talking about George Weigel's books, he's coming to talk to us. He has come to talk to us about uh, uh, his new book just released called The Irony of Modern Catholic History, How the Church Rediscovered Itself and Challenged the Modern World to reform. I found this book incredible. In fact, I had a summer class. I gave myself a summer class in George Weigel's new book and spent <laughs> spent the entire summer just reading through it. It's it's not thick, um, but it is deep. And and there's it so is. much it's that deep. we're gonna be able to cover. And it, it's I feel like I learned so much in this one book and plan on gifting it to as many different people as I can to help understand the beauty of our church. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Mr. George Weigel. Thank you, Gracie. Good to be here. Well, we're very, very fortunate that you've taken the time to come and talk to us um, about your new book called The Irony of Modern Catholic History, How the Church Rediscovered Itself and Challenged the Modern World to Reform. Both Andrea and I have read it. I wish that you could see my very well-thumbed copy with all my little post-it notes and, and my extensive my extensive writing all over it. I can never lend this out. Um, <laughs> so this is a fascinating book, and and it's wonderful the way you've that you've approached this uh, really interesting point about modernity, um, uh, a stage of the of world history that we're all living in, but that maybe very few of us understand properly because we don't have the uh, the philosophical and historical grounding that that your book gives us. So um, why don't you, Mr. Weigel, give us the sort of the overarching premise of, of this book about Catholicism and modernity. Well, what, the question, Gracie, of course, is what is the irony of the title? And, and there are actually many ironies in this particular fire. 
<laughs> uh, but the two big ones are, first, that Catholicism's encounter with modernity, which began with political modernity particularly, trying to destroy the church, Mm-hmm. and the popes of the mid-19th century hurling anathemas uh, at, at the modern world. Ironically, and I believe providentially, in a drama with five acts that I lay out in the book, mm-hmm. uh, compelled the Catholic Church to rediscover the truth about itself, the essential truth about itself, as an evangelical or missionary enterprise. That's what the church is for. And that rediscovery, which took some 150 years uh, or more to effect, uh, is the grand strategy of of the Catholic Church in the 21st century and the third millennium, as described by John Paul II as the new evangelization. The second uh, irony is embedded inside the first. For while the Church was developing, recovering, this self-understanding as a communion of disciples in mission. It was also developing a social doctrine, a way of thinking about political, cultural, social, and economic modernity that just may save this postmodern world of ours from completely imploding (laughs) into incoherence and worse. There are a lot of other ironies in the fire along the way, (laughs) but those are the two big ones uh, and above all, I think this is this book is an attempt to turn the usual telling of this tale uh, upside down and inside out. The usual telling of the tale is that uh, the modern world acts and the Catholic Church reacts. That's right. That's just not the way it worked. It's a much more complex complex relationship and a much more interesting one. And that's the way the way you stated. That's the way most of us think about it. Even those of us who feel we're very educated <laughs> and knowledgeable. <laughs> Mr. Weigel, before we get into kind of the meat of the book and the acts that you lay out, I was I was thinking, even since the first time that I heard the premise, um, who needs to hear this? Because when I first heard it, I felt incredible consolation that this is uh, being in the Catholic Church right now is exactly where I need to be. And I know um, people who have left the church or, or kind of are in the middle of the boat of Peter uh, wanting to leave from the right. Uh, traditionalists, uh, rigorists, or to the left, progressivists. And I suspect that this book is of help for them as well, for knowing where to stay, stay steady, stay tranquil. And um, I suspect that that was your intention in writing it as well. Well, I hope the book uh, is ultimately encouraging, uh, if for no other reason that it explains that the church has been in turmoil for a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. The notion in some parts of the Catholic world that everything was calm and placid before the Second Vatican Council is just nonsense on stilts. And <laughs> I lay that out uh, uh, in some detail in the, uh, in, in the irony of modern Catholic history. On the other hand, the notion that Catholicism thrives by simply surrendering to modernity in all of its forms and claims is equally false, as as I think I show. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a challenge in here for everyone, but the book is is not score-settling. It's an attempt to tell the story, not just in a different way, but in what I believe is a truer way. Uh, And therefore, Andrea, to, to answer your question, uh, the book is, frankly, for everybody. It's mm-hmm. it's not a book for Catholics only. Uh, it's very much a book for anyone interested in how the world's largest religious uh, body has dealt with the enormous changes that have washed over humanity like a tsunami hmm. for the past several hundred years. It's also important, uh, uh, even for people who have no interest in how the Catholic Church has has shaped uh, world history, um, it's it's really important for them to understand that modernism itself owes a great deal to the biblical religions. And I think that your book um, goes into this extensively and in a way that's very powerful. Well, thank uh, you. The way, yes, go ahead. Thank you. I, I, this is another of the great myths of our time that modernity, uh, particularly political modernity, the notion of human rights at the basis of any just society, the rule of law, 
uh, civility, tolerance, that all of this stuff only starts in the 18th century. This is more nonsense on <laughs> stilts. It's the biblical image of the human person. It's the biblical notion of life as adventure, pilgrimage, history going somewhere that are that form the much deeper roots of, of the modern project. Uh, and because the church has a richer and nobler concept of freedom than the dumbed-down version of freedom that we find in too much of the postmodern world today, uh, the church can be, if it purifies itself uh, and acts as a community of disciples and mission, uh, the church can can affect a rescue operation. Mm-hmm. It can it can provide a more secure foundation for the modern world's aspirations to freedom, uh, to the dignity of the human person, to solidarity, and to prosperity. You know, Mr. Wago, you make a point that was very powerful to me because I know a lot of people who who are, you know, secular modernists. Uh, And you say, Christianity would develop the moral insight into human equality by stressing that the individual, not the family, is the focal point of hope for a human future. I found that very strong because people, I think people who uh, don't understand the Catholic Church and its and its struggle with modernity and the way it's transformed it, uh, and also the ba- the way modernity has as its basis biblical religion, really discount um, the way that individualism, individuality, and equality are based in these biblical uh, in, in Judaism and Christianity. One of the books that shaped my own thinking on this is by a, a British philosopher, history of historian of philosophy named Larry Seidentop, and the book is called The Birth of the Individual. And I think Professor Seidentop goes a little bit off the rails uh, once he gets <laughs> into the 18th century. But his analysis of what um, Christianity brought uh, to the idea of the individual human person as a rights-bearing creature with innate, inalienable dignity and value uh, is really important. And it's utterly ignored by most secular mm-hmm. tellings of the tale, which would lead you to believe that until Voltaire wakes up, <laughs> uh, nobody <laughs> knew any of this stuff. And that's just not true. Nice. <laughs> that's just not uh, true. So um, in addition to... Uh, a rescue project on 21st century postmodernity. Uh, this book is a little bit of an excavation of the deeper archaeological roots uh, of, of certain key ideas in the modern world. Mr. Weigel, I'd like to, to start delving into the be- beginning acts of your book, and I would direct all of our listeners um, first to buy the book. And while you're waiting for the book, <laughs> uh, Mr. Weigel has, has published a beautiful piece uh, just recently in First Things, kind of giving a nice teaser um, to it. And, and we shouldn't stop there. It's one of those um, wetting your appetites kind of opportunities and gifts, which I've enjoyed reading as well. But um, as we, you mentioned before, you kind of look at the, the modern project and the role of the Catholic Church in it and in shaping it and, and put together kind of a, a nice package, which is different acts to walk us through um, history. And maybe we can start off a little bit with the first act. Um, where, where, where are we begin this lovely, it's lovely Catholic- production? Catholicism against modernity is act one. Well, I originally uh, had as a subtitle of this book uh, a drama in five acts. The publisher wanted a more descriptive subtitle. But I think a drama in five acts really captures uh, what's going on here because as I began to think about these things four or five years ago in preparation for an academic conference uh, in Boston, it occurred to me that you can you can almost periodize Uh, modern Catholic history from the French Revolution to the present uh, as a drama in five acts. So the first of these acts uh, I call Catholicism against modernity and that begins with the political assault on the Catholic Church through uh, the French Revolution and other 19th century uh, uh, attempts at modern state formation. And and the (laughs) rather negative, the completely negative uh, (laughs) reaction to that, uh, response to that by Popes Gregory the Sixteenth and Pius the Ninth. 
Now, those fellows were, were far more complicated than the usual telling of the tale uh, allows. But it is true. It's not an exaggeration to say that particularly in terms of political modernity, uh, those two popes rather anticipated Nancy Reagan's anti-drug campaign uh, with the slogan, <laughs> just, say no. just say no. We're not uh, doing it. So you know, I always thought that Pius IX was lovingly called Pio Nono, like endearingly, and not because it was no, no, no. It's, it's a play on the Italian uh, version of his, of his name. And, I, you know, some people can use it effect, uh, affectionately. Others use it. Uh, as a as a bit of nineteenth century snark, um, <laughs> but um, there's an interesting irony with Pius the Ninth. Um, Pius the Ninth is primarily remembered today for this document called the Syllabus of Errors, which is a pretty full throated assault, uh, critique, sharp critique of many of the intellectual underpinnings of the contemporary thought. Uh, of his uh, day. And of course, it ends with the condemnation of the notion that the Pope should accommodate himself to liberalism and progress and, and modern civilization. Yet, this Pope was also the first modern Pope. Mm -hmm. uh, his persecution by the forces of Italian unification, uh, which eventually cost him the remnant of the Papal States and forced him uh, behind the Leonine Wall, as, as what he self-described as the prisoner of the Vatican, won him enormous sympathy throughout the Catholic world. Uh, there were 35,000 Catholics in the United States at the time of the American Revolution. I would be surprised if 5% of them knew who the Pope of the day was. Hmm. The Pope simply did not occupy mm -hmm. the central place in Catholics' religious imagination or ecclesiastical imagination. That, that popes have occupied in our lifetime. And the beginning of that is, is Pius IX. He was the first pope that people had pictures of in their home. Uh, so he's, he's an interesting character, but the first act really is one of just say no. What I like the next um, bridging us to a bridge from Act 1 to Act 2 in your book is talking about some of these bridge builders, right? And we have coming up uh, the canonization of Cardinal Newman, who was one of the great bridge builders. And you, and you talk about the role of these churchmen and scholars and thinkers in bringing the church along um, and starting to dabble with what you call in Act Two, Catholicism explores modernity gingerly. There are some great figures in 19th century um, Catholic uh, intellectual uh, life. Newman is certainly premier among them. Uh, these were Germans, Italians, in Newman's case, uh, um, a straight out of central casting Englishman, <laughs> who uh, understood that uh, while the church did need to defend itself, from forms of rationalism that denied uh, any access to religious truth, uh, that the, the cultural world had changed and the church needed to engage uh, the world of culture, particularly the world of ideas, mm -hmm. uh, in terms and categories that could be understood by, by frankly, its opponents. Uh, so you have between Act One and Act Two a lot of what Andrea just described uh, as bridge building, and uh, that Newman is going to be canonized on October thirteenth uh, puts a kind of nice big exclamation mm -hmm. point mm -hmm. uh, on his role in this process. At the, when we in Act Three, and I'm sorry, in Act Two, you spend uh, a good amount of time on Pope Leo the Thirteenth and what you call the Leonine Project. Can you tell us about how he ushered in Act Three? Leo the uh, Thirteenth is the pivotal figure in this whole book. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a pope who's rarely referenced today. There's no really adequate modern biography of him, and yet at the beginning of his pontificate in 1878, he. Uh, decided uh, boldly uh, that uh, we were not going to go down this just say no road anymore. We were going to engage, <laughs> we Catholicism, we're going to engage the modern world with distinctively Catholic tools 
uh, freshly sharpened for the uh, for the uh, project. So Leo sets in motion over a 25-year pontificate between 1878 and 1903 just about every significant uh, movement and development in Catholic life with which we continue to wrestle today, whether that's uh, fresh approaches to philosophy and theology, a new dialogue with science, uh, Leo creates modern Catholic social doctrine, uh, he creates the modern church's study of its own history, which inevitably leads to the conclusion that the church, as John Henry Newman would demonstrate conceptually, uh, develops over time. The, the church mm -hmm. is not a static reality. Uh, what Newman's fellow English cardinal, Henry Edward Manning, used to describe as, as the beauty of inflexibility uh, is in fact a kind of dodging of the evangelical imperative of the moment uh, to convert the modern world. Uh, and in order to convert it, you got to be able to talk to it. I, I really appreciate after your discussion, which is very helpful on uh, Pope Leo, you move on to talking about Pius X. And there's a lot of confusion about Pius X thinking that he was kind of backsliding back into kind of rigid um, uh, discipline. And, and you highlight that he took some pretty bold moves to bring the faithful closer to Christ. Well, Pius X is a very, like all popes, is a very complicated character. Um, his <laughs> critique of what he called the sum of all heresies, the summit and sum of all heresies, modernism, uh, was necessary, but the implementation of that uh, in Catholic universities and seminaries was pretty brutal and uh, unnecessary in, in its brutality. At the same time, uh, by encouraging the frequent reception of Holy Communion and by allowing children from the so-called age of reason, generally thought to be seven, uh, to receive their first Holy Communion and then, and then to receive Which has helped Holy families communion. impressively. <laughs> often, he just changed the spiritual landscape mm -hmm. of the Catholic Church, which became much more um, familial. Uh, and and I think we see the effects uh, of that even down uh, to uh, today. Uh, but uh, the other thing to be said about Pius X uh, is that he saw the First World War coming. Uh, and as we noted last year on the centenary of, of the end of the First World War, that was the, that was the real break point uh, in, in the history of the Western world. Uh, world War I was an active civilizational suicide or an attempted civilizational suicide. And he saw that coming and warned against it and then died three weeks after it broke hmm. out. When you um, are bringing us to where a lot of us sitting in the pews think about the Catholic Church today, which is um, post-Vatican II, you, you talk about this transition period from um, Pius X and then bringing us um, through some of the latter popes and, and the wonderful contribution of American Catholics to preparing the church for this second council. Um, I thought it was really, it made me proud <laughs> to be an American and also proud of the contribution of very great faithful scholars like I think it was Murray that you mentioned in particular. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's, it's true uh, and it needs to be remembered that um, the Catholic Church in the United States by living an experience of um, political modernity that was good for the church at that time uh, help the church uh, rediscover uh, some ancient truths about uh, the act of faith, about religious freedom, uh, and about how to cope with political modernity in a way that didn't involve surrendering to it. Uh, and that helped set up many things, including the church's role in the pro-life movement and in the defense of religious freedom around the world today. No, we have to take a short break, Mr. Weigel, but when we come back, we're going to launch into Act 3 of the five-act play, and we're going to talk about how the church uh, grapples with, really uh, grapples with modernity, embraces it, in fact, 
and and how we help uh, as a church the West find a more rational and humane path to the future. So thank you so much, Mr. Weigel, and we'll be right back with uh, conversations with consequences. Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences, the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I am joined by my friend and colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bear, and also by our very distinguished guest, Mr. George Weigel, who's come to talk to us about his book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, a fascinating book about how Catholicism has engaged modernism and uh, will continue to do so. And we have been going through the book because he organized, Mr. Weigel organized it very interestingly into five acts, as in a play. So we were uh, talking about Act 3, which is the act where Catholicism embraces modernity. And we were talking about Vatican, the Second Vatican Council and uh, Pope uh, John XXIII and how interesting his approach was to modernity, uh, prepared before the hand by um, Pope Leo. <laughs> well, Mr. Weigel, I was really um, grateful for the book's explanation of the council and the work of uh, Pope John Twenty-Third to help us really understand what we're called to be as Catholics for the modern world, not just for our own holiness and our own chances at heaven, but how the church is um, critical for the modern project as well. And perhaps you could talk a little bit about First, um, the curious, the irony of another presumptive placeholder in the election of, of uh, John XXIII. There's a lot of parallels between John XXIII and Leo XIII. Uh, they were elected precisely 80 years uh, apart. Um, Pius XII had reigned for 19 years. It was thought uh, that it was time for, uh, you know, a shorter pontificate. Here was this... Um, jolly, uh, <laughs> friendly-looking, experienced Vatican diplomat, the Patriarch of Venice, Cardinal Roncalli. So he's elected uh, as a placeholder, keep the chair warm for, for four or five uh, years. Uh, but like Leo Thirteenth again, he takes another bold, grand strategic decision at the beginning of his pontificate. As, as Leo decided to engage modernity, with distinctive Catholic tools, uh, John the Twenty-Third decides to gather up uh, all of these energies that have been let loose by what I call the Leonine Revolution, focus them through the prism of an ecumenical council, the first in over a hundred years, uh, and uh, come out of that uh, with a church further and more deeply committed to its evangelical and missionary task in its third millennium. And that intention of John XXIII's uh, is quite evident in his opening address uh, to the council. Council explored just about every conceivable facet of mm -hmm. Catholic life, uh, but it didn't provide the keys to its own interpretation as other councils had done. There were no creeds. There was no definition of doctrine. There was no condemnation of heresy. There were no canons written into the legal system of the church. There was no catechism, as the Council of Trent commissioned. There were 16 documents, but what was lacking was a thread that mm -hmm. would bind them together uh, into, a, into a coherent and, and beautiful tapestry. It took about 20 years to get that thread uh, defined uh, and in place. Uh, and that happened during the pontificate of, of John Paul II. But for purposes of uh, getting straight what Vatican II was about, Vatican II was not about turning the church into an imitation of liberal Protestantism, nor was Vatican II about freezing the Catholic Church in amber as if it were some uh -huh. sort of you know, dead insect in a you know, beautiful golden globe of goo here. <laughs> uh, Vatican II was about, at least as John XXIII understood it, preparing the church for mission, uh, preparing the church for a future of evangelization. And, and John XXIII's successor, 
Pope Paul VI, who who had a tough pontificate mm. over 15 years, Goodness. towards the end, uh, tried to reclaim this with uh, an apostolic exhortation uh, called Evangelii Nunciandi, uh, announcing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, uh, in which he tried to recapture that animating motivation of John the Twenty Third in, in summoning Vatican II, and in that sense, the last few years of Pope Paul the Sixth set up John Paul the Second for what he would call mm -hmm. the new evangelization. Well, and so it's, this, I was yeah. just going to say, it's very helpful if anyone. Um, hasn't delved into the 16 documents of Vatican Council II. It's very helpful, um, the chapters that you have in Act Three, Act Three, because they really um, analyze the big moments, the, the declarations on religious liberty, for example, and things and what was going on and how that was both the foundation was laid before the council got together through the Leonine Foundation. Uh, Revolution and how um, and how we should understand those documents instead of being kind of bristling or fighting or misinterpreting how they they are are later given life and that that thread that you speak about um, which I think you uh, later mentioned in the eighties is really kind of woven through all these documents. It, the thread is actually there in a, in a preliminary way in the most important of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, which was its dogmatic constitution mm -hmm. on the church, known by the Latin title Lumen Gentium, the light of the nations. Uh, this is the kind of meta-document through which all of the other documents of Vatican II should be read. And what Lumen Gentium did was ask the church to move beyond thinking of itself strictly in institutional and legal terms and start thinking of itself more in biblical and pastoral terms. Now, that doesn't mean losing grip on, on the truth that the church uh, bears, that the church lives by, and that the church proposes, but it's a much uh, richer concept of, of Catholicism than a merely legal concept mm -hmm. of the church as, quote, a perfect society. Well, the church is a lot of other things. The, the church is the sacrament of Christ's presence in the world. The church is a herald of the gospel. The church is a communion of believers who support each other in their uh, missionary and evangelical activity. So if we read... Vatican II, through the prism of, of Lumen Gentium, the Constitution on the Church, uh, we begin to see what the fathers of the Extraordinary Synod of 1985 saw, that there is a thread here. And the thread is the notion of the Church as a communion of disciples and mission. Mm -hmm. You know, going into... Okay, so... Uh, Coming out of Act Three, <laughs> I keep focusing on the Acts, but I find it very helpful to understand how uh, th this is a play in five Acts. It uh, okay. So in Act Three, we have we have uh, the Church emerging from this embrace of modernity and and with an evangelical outlook. So the Church is going to propose. Um, the answers to modernity's uh, quest for meaning, for meaning, right? And, and not impose. Not I mean, impose, but propose. A dialogue, right? And, and a one, that, it's an invitation, I guess. Yeah, it's and an I, invitation, but it's an invitation to meet the truth. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. It's not dialogue for the sake of I'm okay, you're okay. It's no, dialogue it's a, for the sense of here, here is something we think makes for human happiness and let, let us tell you about it. It's called meeting the Lord Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. And then, and then as far as the church's social doctrine, um, the church is going to propose, right, coming out of Vatican II, coming out of Act Three, it's going to propose that the, the church's social doctrine can be a more secure foundation for all the very lofty aspirations of modernity, right, like equality and liberty and solidarity. Um, and, you know, this brings us to Act Four, which I found, I think it was my favorite act. Act Four and Act Five are my favorite acts. I love because Five. <laughs> Act four. So Act four is where Catholicism critiques modernity from within. And I thought this was fascinating mm -hmm. because this is where uh, Catholicism really, you know, enters into the modern project and proposes uh, real solutions to to what ails modernity. Um, 
And here I love I, this uh, quote, abandoned. Okay, so the moderns abandoned metaphysics, which was thinking about truth, for epistemology, thinking about thinking, and finally decomposed to thinking about thinking about thinking, which is the intellectual playpen of self-absorption. I have three recent college graduates, two recent college graduates, one in college, and I, I find that all their classes, unless they're studying engineering, all their classes are thinking about thinking about thinking. They never actually come to any conclusions, whether it's an English class or philosophy or even economics. They're just thinking about thinking. Uh, I was also, you, I loved the, that the um, the protagonists in this act are the odd couple, right? Uh, Saint Pope John Paul II and and um, Pope Benedict, and and you wouldn't see in in their personalities, and they, they seem very different, right? And and you probably knew you know them, <laughs> knew them um, well, and being able to see how collectively they were able to guide us through. The act. They they were a remarkable uh, team. I think one of the most extraordinary in the long uh, long history of the papacy. They were very different human personalities with very different uh, personal backgrounds uh, and uh, histories. But uh, they were both forged in the crucible of the Second World War. Uh, they were both world class intellectuals. They were both men deeply devoted to the priesthood, and they were both utterly convinced that the Catholic Church, not through its own merits, but through the gift of, of grace through its Lord Jesus Christ, had the answer to the questions that were uh, that beset humanity. Uh, from its origins, from the beginning, but what, 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 but what, but which were becoming particularly acute uh, in the late twentieth century? Why is there anything at all? Hmm. What is the purpose of my life? Mm -hmm. How do I find happiness? Is there anything beyond my mortality in terms of my my destiny? These are perennial human questions, but they become very acute mm -hmm. in a world that's cut itself off from big ideas exactly. and, is, and is in this uh, playpen of thinking about thinking about thinking. Um, <laughs> so clever. Which it's actually, it's not my phrase. It's oh, no? The, uh, it's, uh, there was a brilliant young Polish philosopher who died perhaps 20 years ago, whom I became friends with in the early 1990s. He was kind of John Paul II's philosophical great-grandson. Mm -hmm. His name was Wojciech Hudy, and he, he, he wrote his second doctoral dissertation called Philosophy in the Trap of Reflection, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of wilderness of mirrors of thinking about thinking about thinking. And how do you get out of that? How do you get out of the wilderness of mirrors and reconnect thought to reality? Because if thought isn't tethered to reality, then it's simply a reflection of, of my uh, passions at, at, at any given uh, moment. And this is one of the, the three crucial points that you, that you say in Act 4 that the church proposes for a revitalized modern project. And one of them is reaffirming reason, which is uh, the fact that human beings can discover moral truths through reason. Not just moral truths, although they're very important, but uh, other uh, truths as well. I mean, we accept scientific truth, uh, but we've we've made scientific uh, the scientific method the only method hmm. by which to get to the truth. Well, that's just not right. We get to the truth through literature. We get through the truth hmm. through poetry. Experience. We get through experience, through music, through. Uh, relationships. Good uh, conversations. Well, let's hope. Um, <laughs> Especially uh, if they have consequences. <laughs> uh, so th the church is about expanding human horizons. If there's one way to sum up the Catholic critique of late modernity and postmodernity, it's that we've just we've just locked ourselves into a room without doors, windows, or skylights. Mm -hmm. And that's going to get pretty suffocating after a while. And when people start suffocating, they start doing nasty things to each other. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, the Where story of our time as well. That's Act 5. I um, appreciated the 
the commentary that you gave, especially on Pope Benedict's work and his kind of calling out the danger of relativism. And I remember when he started speaking um, in his pontificate about relativism and the danger of relativism for the world. Um, and it, for many people, it fell on, on flat ears. No one, no one really saw it as being at all dangerous. That kind of you could do whatever you wanted. That there was no um, there was no truth, no moral truth, and there was no truth in general. Well, freedom for willfulness, not for not for excellence. Well, this has this has very considerable, you know, so-called real-world consequences. If you if you believe that um, reality is simply structured by the human will then it makes perfect sense uh, to say when a 16-year-old, somewhat confused uh, boy says, I'm really a girl, uh, fine, we'll, we'll turn you into a girl because that, that's what you want or, or vice versa. This is the ultimate plasticity of, of the human condition. It's, it's soul-destroying uh, and yet it's where a lot of Western society has, uh, has come uh, today and against that, the church has to say, no. There are truths built into the world and into us. Uh, we can get at them uh, by reason as well as by revelation. And when we grasp them, or when they grasp us, when these truths grasp us, uh, we begin to understand our obligations and what makes for for real uh, happiness. So the church is on a re the church is always on a rescue mission, but um, the the rescue is becoming more and more urgent. Uh, well, and that's these, where we get to uh, Act Five, right? My Correct. favorite, <laughs> because there's incredible um, there's an incredible charge and hope uh, in Act Five, and and it seems as if the the entire theater is dim and dark, but um, the church. Is that light, and and that's where I think my favorite part is in the book, and in in where we are right now, why we are right here, right now, and why being in the Catholic Church is exactly where we need to be. And perhaps you can guide us to the happy ending or, well, of I, the of the continuation of the play. Uh, whether there's a happy ending, this side of the kingdom come in its glory remains to be seen. Uh, what there is is the opportunity for witness, for evangelization, for mission. Uh, there are an enormous number of good things going on in the Catholic Church uh, today. But in order to make those good things more visible, we are being called to go through a, a period of intense purification. Mm -hmm. That's what this whole abuse crisis and the leadership crisis that has followed hard on the heels of the— abuse crisis has, has been about. It's been about purifying the church to be the church of the new evangelization. Uh, I am not an optimist. Optimism and pessimism are matters of optics. It's just how you look at things on any given day. Um, but I am, I hope, a man of hope. Uh, hope is a theological virtue. Hope is rooted in faith. Uh, and uh, I believe... Uh, and I think this belief is confirmed by looking around us at all of the th good things we see going on uh, in and through the Catholic Church today around the world, uh, that the, the new evangelization really has uh, a possibility of, of turning uh, the world in a more humane direction. Well, Whether it succeeds or not is not up to us. Uh, we're only supposed to try. But I think that you make a good point. You, um, There's a tendency for people to go to the extremes, right? And one extreme could be kind of rigoristic traditionalism, thinking it would all be great if we went back to the papal states even. <laughs> we imposed things on people. <laughs> or a, a very far liberal progressive ideology. We just need to get rid of any kind of rules and everything's going to work out well. And I think that there's incredible um, common sense <laughs> and historical support for the proposition that we just need to live what we're being called to live, and that's live holiness and faithfully live out our vocation. And that's going to attract not only nonbelievers, but rebuild the church. 
I, I think that's I think that's true, Andrea. Um, I spent uh, four days in Munich in June prior to uh, going to Poland for the summer program I, I lead there every year. Uh, and if if people think we've got trouble in the church in the United States, it's uh, it's very very uh, manageable compared to the total disaster that is Catholicism in in Munich. I mean, this is a Catholic city mm. in the most Catholic part of Germany, and we're looking at two percent mass attendance on Sunday. Two, 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 two hundred people in a parish of ten thousand. Uh, people show up uh, on Sunday. They are desperate for things that we have built here, uh, an active Orthodox Catholic intellectual life, magazines and newspapers that, that nourish Catholic faith, groups like Focus, which take mm -hmm. the gospel mm -hmm. out onto campus. Beautiful. The one thing that was really impressive to me that, that may help turn this German disaster around. Is it's, There's some very effective Catholic radio going on in Germany hmm. today. So that People was, are yearning for truth. That was, uh, that was impressive. Um, but it's, uh, it's a meltdown, and uh, we are not in the meltdown stage here. We, we, can, we can come through this period purified and strengthened for a future of evangelism. And we can convert. The Catholicism can convert modernity and uh, reimagine it for, for the moderns and then hand them back a, uh, hand us back because we're the moderns, <laughs> hand us back a project that, that makes sense to the highest, noblest aspirations. And thank you so much, Mr. Weigel, for this amazing book, um, which is such a wonderful read. Uh, it's, it's just full of, of fabulous stories, as you say. And it, and it gives us the whole story of Catholicism and modernity. And thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you for having me. That's been wonderful. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically targeted for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And this week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily, written and audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. For some of us, it'll be a very confusing conversation, which is why it's good for us to prepare. Jesus will give what for many Catholics is the most confusing parable in the gospel, what's popularly called the parable of the dishonest steward, which it seems that Jesus, truth incarnate, is praising a crooked business manager for deception. And he who gave the commandment, thou shalt not steal, is himself lauding someone for violating it. In the parable, a manager is about to get sacked because he was squandering the property of his business owner. His boss had given him his pink slip and told him to do an audit of the books prior to dismissal. So the man called in those mostly tenant farmers who owed his employer money or item and reduced their debts considerably. At first glance, this seems like dishonesty, like he was allowing the debtors to steal from his boss, but it wasn't. Because in the ancient world, the way loans were conducted was that the manager or broker would be paid by adding something on to what was borrowed, rather than taking a percentage out of the master's proceeds. For example, if someone borrowed 50 barrels of oil, he would have to pay back the owner 55, but the broker could tack on 10, 30, or 50 extra, whatever he thought he could get. This dishonest steward was probably tacking on way too big of a commission in order to maximize his profits was probably like Fannie or Freddie early this century, lending out the master's property at very bad risks. Hence, when the manager called in those who owed, for example, 100 containers of wheat, and reduced it to 80, he was almost assuredly eliminating most or all of his commission. Faced with the decision of saving his life by making friends who would take care of him after he was fired, or trying to hold out to the end to the possibility of making maximal money, he chose to save his life. His master, in Jesus through the master in the parable, calls this prudent and wise. What's the application to us? 
Jesus wants us to place ourselves in the position of that steward. He's given each of us tremendous gifts on the basis of which we have made profits. Our hands, which we use to work, our brains, which we use to think, our family and friends, our education, our lives, so many other blessings. With these gifts, we have made a profit. But have we been using those gifts fundamentally to build up his kingdom or ours? Jesus gives us this parable in order to help us to see that our time is coming to an end, that we need to prepare an accounting. He wants us, like the steward in the gospel, to start to sacrifice our commissions, our possessions or time for others. This is the way we might be taken care of in return so that those we help may remember us and be our supporters and welcome us into, as Jesus says, eternal homes. The implication is that if we don't want to do the right thing simply because it's the right thing, if we don't want to love others because we're Christian or have a good heart, then at least we should do it because it's in our eternal best interest. At the end of this Sunday's gospel, Jesus says that the children of the age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. For example, business owners, if they know that a certain practice is losing them money, fix it right away. If they can't, they eliminate it. They know that in order to survive, they've got to cut their losses. Otherwise, they'll end up in chapter 11. Christians, however, when we know that a certain thing is losing us God's grace, seldom act in such a decisive and intelligent way. Even though a serious sin might send us into eternal bankruptcy, we often don't get rid of it. The failure to cut out sinful behavior from our lives is, for Jesus, simply stupid. In the story, Jesus is essentially telling us to use our heads, to be smart about our salvation. If we've been selfish with our gifts, if we haven't been putting God first, if we've been neglecting those left in ditches on the side of the road, the time is now to use our heads to do so. If we've been trying to compromise with a sin, something that's obviously wrong but that we're trying to deny, now is the time to change. This way, when it comes time to render an account of all the blessings of life we've received, Jesus may praise us eternally for acting shrewdly, together with all those with help through sharing God's generosity as good and faithful stewards. He may welcome us into eternal homes. That's what this Sunday's conversation is about. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. Thank you so much for another beautiful homily preparing us for this Sunday's gospel. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our show. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I was joined today by my co-hostess, Andrea picciari Bayer, the Legal Legal of the Catholic Association. And we were very privileged to have Mr. George Weigel with us today talking about his book on the irony of modern Catholic history. I think this is a great uh, book for everyone to buy immediately after listening to what I think is one of our best podcasts, Gracie, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, mainly because we're kind of lost souls right now in understanding where our place is in the church and in human history. And this book gives us a roadmap. It helps us see where we've been before, where we are, and where we should be heading, which is living greater holiness and being the, that attractive light for others to come to the truth. Because the way, the way to deal with modernism is not to uh, hunger down into our little, our little bubbles. <laughs> run, run to pretend, the hills. <laughs> pretend it's not happening, but we yeah. have to be that, we have to be, um, we have to take the evangelical way and bring, and bring Christ to modernity and, and reinform the modern project in ways that make sense for human beings. And Mr. Weigel was really good at explaining all this to us. If you've been listening on the radio, thank you for listening to Conversations with Consequences on the Guadalupe Radio Network, 11 a.m. on Fridays. If you're not, then you're listening on uh, to our podcast, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to uh, subscribe at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, where you can subscribe for free. And also please sign up for our TCA Clips daily email. Tell your friends about us, and you'll be hearing from us next week.